Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. To that end, we focus on three central planks of our writing manifesto. Number one, to help you write more. Number two, to help you write better. And number three, to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. To that end, sometimes I look at your first pages, I mean, not you personally, you in the uh, general sense, but perhaps your you personies, uh, first pages of your novels and short stories and novellas, whatever you're working on, whatever you've polished up to its fullest extent. And I give some feedback on how I think it could be made better. Sometimes I get other authors onto the show and I invite them on and we talk about writing and we talk about all the kind of things that... Um, writers have to face and uh, I speak to everyone from uh, you know new authors debut authors or um, indie authors to people who are in the kind of middle of their careers to best-selling authors who've sold millions and millions of books and find a lot of common ground with all of those people I've also spoken to people who write for role-playing games I've spoken to some psychologists and neuroscientists um spoken to a wide variety of people, all of whom I think possibly have quite a bit to tell us about ways that we can write better and enjoy it more. I like to you know, do a big grab bag of experts. Uh, I, I think I would be both an eclecticist and a syncreticist. I don't know if that's a real word in that I like to um, cast my net wide but I'm also quite obsessed, you know, having a slightly systems-oriented mind or occasionally having that kind of mind. I, I like to look for ways I could slot things together into um, what I, I, I've, I've taken to calling um, my gut ache, which is my um, grand unified theory of achieving creative happiness easily. Uh, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, I think that all acronyms should be banned. They're like there's always at least one word in them that doesn't really need to be in there but has been put in there for the sake of the acronym, right? You see that they got a little way in and then added some stuff in to make it make sense and and to fix a word. But gut ache is uh, is I'm always working on improving my uh, my gut ache. And today's episode is going to be a writing ramble, which is another type of episode I do where I just don't script it and I just chat to you about whatever's on my mind. Maybe, you know, we'll just stumble across something to talk about. And I suppose on, on one level, it's true to say they are the laziest episodes because they're unscripted, they're unplanned, I don't edit them at all. Uh, and I normally try to, I mean, the feedback I get on these episodes is normally that actually there's a contingent of people who really enjoy them but uh i i like to have a sort of diverse range of things i, I like to do all the different types of episode um the reason i've had a run of these that this is my third on the trot which is unprecedented in the history of um death of a thousand cuts is because some of you may know and i'm gonna you know i expect this episode is gonna feel more like a kind of diary episode and hopefully there'll be some things that are pertinent to your writing journey or where you are with your writing uh, i hope but just uh, as always with any kind of writing ramble episode i want to put a big uh, sign on this territory saying here be dragons it as as the name suggests tends to be quite discursive there are lot, lots of um what you would 
what would be known in kind of linguistic circles as um, filler and hedging words. So some ums, some ahs, some you knows. Uh, I have a particular fondness for the uh, for for using a like. Yeah, it's like it's like that tends to be my hedging word, my my word that I use to bridge perceived silences and and of course you know like when you're um i did it there see it's it's exciting now i think the more self-conscious you get the more these things come out i try not to be too bothered about it now i've mentioned it you'll probably notice it a bit more but one of the things that they say about broadcasting and i've done been doing this for a a while I, i actually presented a radio show for three years weekly before i started doing this podcast and i wasn't particularly good at it but you know i spent a lot of time on mic with nothing especially to say which I I think was often reflected in the content of the show and the listenership and the kind of emails I used to get which were just like please stop talking please play more music but I wasn't interested in that especially and often I would be quite catty about the songs I just played because I wasn't always choosing the playlist or I had a certain amount of control and just often there was a lot of not very good kind of like second tier 80s two tone <laughs> that I was like I'm not sure that this is I feel like this person re- whoever wrote this did this playlist at the radio station is is like a an 80s burnout maybe lost their job in the 80s maybe drank a little bit too much sniffed a bit too much glue had a had a rough time uh and has uh, has locked into possibly the worst decade of british music and has an unaccountable and there was a bit of early 90s sort of early dance as well which not you know not quite rave but kind of like poor early dance that you know piss weak beats rubbishy bass no kick whatsoever just kind of rave whistles and hi-hats <laughs> and, and 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 these kind of like thin keening keyboard uh licks that you yeah, it, was, it was awful and i felt bad because it kind of came from a place implied a very damaged person and put it together but they were awful and so i'd often be quite rude about the music you were playing on on the show so it made it it made for a uh maybe a somewhat toxic cocktail for a morning radio show of somebody like me talking at length and then playing a song and then going oh that was rubbish wasn't it why why, why did i play that so even if you were enjoying the music, I would immediately punish you. Um, uh, but now I enjoy doing the show. But it just anyway, as you can tell, so it, this is going to be di- digressive. And the reason is it, it's for a number of, of things. And I thought I would just talk about them because I do talk about my mental health on the show and mental health in general. And I, I find that my being open about it and I... You know, some people, I, I'm only calling myself open because other people have said that. There's lots of things I'm private about that you just don't know about because I admit them, right? But, you know, I've often found myself uh, called, and it's generally, I think, meant as a compliment that I'm open about my mental health, to which my, I'm always surprised by that. But it just feels like when um, 
when you, when you've been through a, di- a difficult period and stuff this idea that sort of dignity or your sort of how you're perceived by the public or strangers or whatever matters it, it just doesn't right like when you've been feeling incredibly low when maybe your sense of like what's the point of life or whatever is so incredibly skewed or you feel like there might not be any point to anything the idea that you'd be like a little bit embarrassed what johnny rando thinks of you because you got scared sometimes it's just absurd so you're just like well i don't mind talking about it we should talk about things i think you know obviously with people's consent and that they feel that they've got control over what they talk about and you can do it at various levels i think one of the great things about writing is it allows you to practice you know going into a dark room and spending two weeks figuring out what you think by writing it down and that may not be that you're writing straight autobiography or memoir right you're not writing necessarily a an opinion piece but i think whatever you're writing if you're writing from the heart whether you're writing this kind of like whiz bang pulpy adventure with biplanes and rampaging dinosaurs and uh, people sort of like uh, shouting curses at someone else you know hanging from the uh, gondola of an airship as it disappears from a flaming pier or whatever you're writing about or whether you're writing these kind of deeply see it's really writing a historical novel whether you're writing your weird experimental piece of literary fiction whether you're writing a simple piece of social realism i think if unless you're writing something so generic uh, unless you're writing in someone else's property and you're writing to such a formula and i'd say even then it's still possible something about what you think about the world will be revealed by the work in fact you know i'd say actually sometimes writing formula pieces and a formula piece could be kind of like a you know like a a, 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 a romance a piece of romance that has you know these two characters meeting and something's going to stop them from getting together you know whatever archetype you have maybe they don't get on at first and they're forced by circumstance to spend time together and they you know the attraction boils over or you know equally writing a petrarchan sonnet is is formula right it's that's a formula in fact that's more formulaic than writing a romance novel i I was gonna i was gonna add the addendum arguably but i think it it's you'd be you'd be lying if you did say that Petrarchan sonnet was less formula formula isn't bad formula is not bad at all what's bad is hackery in my opinion you you know i again like i don't want to i'm not in a mood of today of like chewing people out but for me hackery is just any writing done without love and it's being a hack is not about a lack of sophistication it's not about something not reaching the standards of high art there's pulp that i love that i love so exciting and colorful and has tragedy and it's just a celebration there's something there's something that makes the roots of my hair tingle when i'm reading something that's been written with love you know i'm thinking about well like gareth l powell's like akak macaque right his his first novel he's been on the show twice now 
Gareth and he's a fantastic writer if you don't follow, follow him on Twitter then I really recommend you do and I've actually got his um, writing manual on the desk here uh, about writing a field guide for aspiring authors it's uh, published by um, by Luna Press Publishing I really recommend it it's like a really it's a nice sort of short uh, readable book with a collection of his articles on creative writing and he's just like a really smart encouraging nice guy who uh manages to be a force of positivity and support without being twee or insincere right he's not never going to be sort of uh one of those kind of instagram inspirational quote or kind of corporate inspiration poster people it's just like talking from the heart and he's a really uh lovely and talented and now uh, you know and and multiple award-winning and best-selling uh author (laughs) Uh, and and always, I'm always a bit careful when I'm calling someone nice because it sounds like slightly barbed. <laughs> Some people interpret that as like you're, you, you know, you're commenting on that. Oh, they've got a good heart because <laughs> because they're not uh, succeeding in other ways. But I think really it's the only way that matters. But, um, you know, in Akak Makak, it starts off with this. <laughs> there's a there's a there's a macaque flying ace uh, in World War Two battling like ninjas and it's funny because it's a second world war so of course there's a banana shortage which is just i don't know that's just hilarious to me but there is something i remember reading it and there just being something breathtaking about oh this author is writing exactly what the fuck they like there is something you see it so rarely that when you encounter it as a reader we we see that kind of honesty and bravery it's because I, I don't mean to overvalorize it but there's so many things that are written with one eye on how this shrinking clique of sort of uh, uh literary fiction and literary festival critics are going to receive it you know i think that's i i this is going to sound very mean and like a lot of mean unkind things you know often they are when you analyze them not very true but i don't think ian McEwan has written anything brave or interesting in in the last three decades you know i'm not sure that he ever did that people often talk about his work as if it's great i hate Ian McEwan's work i don't i think i don't hate him as a person in case it seems like too strong a thing but you know he just writes very safe middle brow pablum basically you know this kind of like mush of pre-chewed sort of middle brow lit thick designed to appeal to the unadventurous tastes of white middle class readers who don't read a lot and to be honest don't you know don't like to stray outside the lines very much maybe they'll read a bit of crime fiction you know a bit of scandy noir but they don't really want to challenge themselves in any way and i think challenging yourself could include reading a kid's book you know about a, some cool dinosaurs it can include reading an adventure it there, there's ways to challenge yourself that aren't just reading difficult french experimental literature which honestly a lot of the stuff i've read by the oulipo the ouvroir de literature potentiel who we tried 
uh, about 10 years ago to unsuccessfully I should say to join but they're really funny and like a lot of their these sort of supposedly difficult experimental books are actually really fun playful things where the point is it's supposed to be funny and entertaining and you read something like uh, Georges Perec's Life a User's Manual and it's really readable packed with like little anecdotes the way it you know it's a series of it's a novel but it you it, each chapter moves between different rooms in this big apartment block and if you like look into how the book was written it turns out we're moving through the rooms the way that each room is chosen is it's moving like a knight would on a chessboard if you imagine the apartment block taken as a kind of cross section of squares by moving say up two floors and then across one to get to the next one you don't experience that in the in the novel particularly um but slowly it moves around the whole set of rooms twice that you know that sounds very pretentious when you first encounter it, but actually it's very playful and very fun like a you know again we're back to talking about formulas are formulas bad or good all the most sort of highbrow books have a formula just sometimes they invent their own formula but often they're borrowing one from ages ago you know a limerick is formulaic right and so is a book where like Georges Perec's La Disparation where it doesn't contain the letter e anywhere in the book now people at the time originally there were some critics who didn't notice when it first came out that there was an e missing and you know part of what Georges Perec was writing as you know the child of I think Belgian Jews I want to say was that with something like the Holocaust like a large and important section of the population can be removed and a lot of people won't really notice or complain and when those critics who'd sort of not noticed that the E was missing found out that a lot of them reacted with like they'd been sort of tricked or cheated and accused him of being pretentious but the book isn't really pretentious it's kind of a lot of it is done in a rather sort of darkly flippant jokey style like it's it's often it's a joke right it's no more pretentious than the question why did the chicken cross the road is some kind of like deep zen koan why did the chicken cross the road you can choose to interpret it that but you're kind of missing you know why did the chicken cross the road road is an it's a weird staple for a joke considering that it's an anti-joke right to get to the other side the joke is that you're expecting some like pun and then they go just wanted to get across the road right it's such a what a weird joke to be seen as one of the archetypal jokes because it's an anti-joke it's a non-joke uh and I, I you know i wouldn't be surprised if years from now you know when the cultural context has disappeared why did the chicken cross the road, you know, dug up by some kind of like future desert nomad uh, culture when all of this is kind of like been melted to kind of glassy slag by some uh, uh, when we're blindsided by a thermonuclear war that we thought the threat had gone. And then and then these nomads come and find uh, graven into tablets. Why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side? And they go and meditate on this in their desert caves for for years to try and understand this ancient wisdom that we seem obsessed by. But I mean, that sounds uh, fanciful and obviously I'm doing it for humorous purposes. But then you look at something like uh, the Zen Cohen, uh, uh, a dog. I uh, know. Uh, sorry. Um, so there was this um, 
There was this uh, Zen master, I think in the, I, I want to say in the uh, Soto tradition of Zen, uh, called Joshu, who was, uh, and there's this Zen koan that, that goes, a, a monk asked Joshu, does a dog have Buddha nature? So Buddha nature is just this kind of inherent goodness and perfection that all human beings we have sometimes obscured by the various uh, defilements like craving and sloth and torpor, things like that. But, you know, basically we're all uh, good. It's kind of like the... It's kind of... I, you know, I don't want to... I realise getting into the uh, theological weeds here, but it's kind of like the inverse of the kind of Catholic conception of uh, original sin. The, the, uh, the, the I think the Buddhists would be uh, more... Uh, more on the side of the uh, Pelagian heresy, this idea that we are actually inherently perfect and that sometimes we just, you know, life gets in the way. Anyway, the Zen Cohen goes, a monk asked Joshu, does a dog have Buddha nature? Joshu replied, Mu, which is, it's reported in the kind of like English translations um, I think uh, DT Suzuki like, often, uh, used this one as well. He's kind of more on the Rinzai side of Zen. This is going to come back to writing, don't worry. Um, that, so Joshu replied Mu. Mu meaning, uh, it's kind of like, it, it means um, means not have. I, I'd say it's like a, in in Japanese, it's, it's like a prefix that's, I suppose, broadly equivalent to un in english you know like uh un like we have do and undo so mu would be would mean like not have if you if you preface something with it it's an odd answer um and, and then like various especially uh sort of uh commentators writing the western tradition will say look what he means here what joshua mean because the answer is you know, some people very say a dog does have Buddha nature or a dog doesn't have Buddha nature, you know, whatever. But he's saying moo, he's saying like, unask the question. Or it's this, and this idea is that, you know, people, especially monks, Zen monks in the Rinzai tradition, would take this koan, this apparent bit of nonsense. A monk asked Joshua, does a dog have Buddha nature? Joshua replied, moo. And, you know, the same as kind of like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And they'd go into the Zendo, into the meditation hall, and they'd sit there, uh, with their hands in the kind of cosmic mudra um, and in their legs in the lotus position and they'd sit there and they'd sweat and meditate and ponder this sort of bit of weird uh, wisdom or this strange riddle until, you know, eventually their, you know, rational mind is foiled and they achieve enlightenment. That's the kind of commentary. What I would point out, and I'm not the first person to point this out, is this... Um, this uh, koan actually comes originally from the Chinese, um, in which uh, I, th I believe Joshua is Joshua's name is like Xiao Xu. Um, I think I'm not going to got the uh, tones right there, so I apologise to my Mandarin speaking uh, audience. It's been almost twenty years since I t since I uh, studied Mandarin, and uh, it has my ability to uh, speak even the most base to, to even buy a fish. Um, has atrophied to the point where I might as well have never learned it at all. But uh, in 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 the Chinese, uh, it's Xiao Shu and the and the uh, so a monk 
asked Chaucer, does a dog have Buddha nature? And then the equivalent of moo is this word woo. So then the Cohen go- go- goes, a monk asked Chaucer, does a dog have Buddha nature? Chaucer replied, woo. Now, my contention is it's a what this originally was is a joke. He's yes, it means un, it might mean un or not have or whatever, but he's pretending to do a woof, right? Like it's a joke. He's giving a flippant answer because it's a silly question that doesn't really need is not important for meditating we don't have to like concern ourselves with these odd theological questions like how is this is that relevant but he's doing a he's he's woofing he's gone woof he's gone woo right that's the joke it's a joke it's like why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side and we can lose these things i think over time and i'm struggling to remember how i got onto this except like talking about formula wasn't i yeah and it being a bad thing or a good thing that we can kind of drift away so far from the beginning reasons we did something that we we that 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 we start this is how orthodoxies and weird cargo cult like um superstitions arise because we forget the original circumstances under which a rule or an idea applied now this week the reason i haven't like prepped a proper episode this week and i'm just talking at you is because i'm working on this book this non-fiction book about anxiety and panic things i've struggled with for over a decade and i'm doing various things and i'm interviewing people and i'm really really busy and also it's my daughter's birthday on friday she's turned three and so there's lots to prepare and everything's been quite full on and so I've just fallen behind with things and i'm trying to be sort of nice to myself about it rather than punishing myself because as we know i often talk about the uh, landmark episode with um procrastination researcher dr tim pitchell but he talked about how some research in sweden that said that the the harsher people are to the harsher you are to yourself when they've done studies the harder harsher people are to themselves and the less um self-forgiving you are and the the more um the less self-love you show for yourself the more likely you are to procrastinate so the kinder you are to yourself and the more you can change things up to kind of like an oh well statement and not do this all or nothing thinking and go oh well you know i haven't been doing hitting what i'd like to do I'm just going to do what I can. I'm going to restart now. Today's a new day and I can make the next best choice, right? What's the next good thing, action that I can take? So, you know, I fully admit that I've been falling behind a bit, uh, but I have been doing lots of other things, been interviewing people, not been writing that much, and I'm still working on that. Um, And I can even, as I say that, it feels guilty. It feels like I'm letting myself off. And we want to hold ourselves to high standards. And I think as a writer, you may have experienced this as well, that you are actually being asked to to, to, to walk a tricky tightrope um, between these two. <laughs> Both sides involve falling off. But you, you, you're, you're sort of having to thread the needle between holding yourself to a high standard because writing at all you know there's most people in your life if you say i didn't write anything today won't round on you and start castigating you because they haven't written anything today either they'll support that yeah give yourself a break 
So on one hand, you can always find people to uh, enable and support your decision to not do any writing at all. And you want to write, so you don't quite want that. But on the other side, as we've seen, if you're mean to yourself, one, you'll make yourself miserable. You really will. And two, it reduces your the chances of your actually writing. So it's, it's, it's very tricky. And, and one of the confounding factors for me over the last couple of weeks is I'm trying to, I'm writing this book on anxiety and panic. If you haven't heard before, these are things that I've suffered from sort of intermittently, but severely for at least 10 years and probably all most of my life, right? Pas, screaming panic attacks, like terror, like hunched under my desk, like crying, sobbing, screaming into a, like a pillow or a, a towel rolled up and shoved in my mouth. Um, lots of irritability, lots of fear when I come down in front of the blank page or in front of the page that I can see what I wrote yesterday and it's not perfect. Lots of avoidance behaviours, lots of comfort eating as well. I think there's, you know, when we talk about panic and anxiety, that's the activation of your sympathetic nervous system that's releasing things like the stress hormone cortisol and adrenaline that's readying your body into this state of hypervigilance. So that's your like fight, flight or freeze uh, response as um, as first formulated by uh, the psychologist Cannon. Um, but uh, we also see this, the, the kind of alternate side of that is the parasympathetic nervous system, which releases, is, is your, what they, they now call like your rest and digest state, right? It's, it's your, you're resting, you're relaxing, you might be releasing lovely things like, uh, like serotonin or, uh, oxytocin, which I talked about on the show with, uh, the uh, neuroscientist uh, Paul J. Zach looking at this thing that, that makes us trust people more and this like love molecule, the moral molecule, he, he, he called it. So there's, you know, and, and those two things can't be activated at the same time. But there's a reason why, for example, as an anxious person, I've often like done some binge eating. And, you know, I'm, I should, you know, warn you, you know, I will m- probably mention that again if um you know, if you have an eating disorder or something, then, then perhaps you don't want to listen to this. But I, you know, I talked to um, we we talked about eating disorders and their effect on on writing a few episodes ago, and some data on that big big study. Because I think you know these things can be linked, right? And all of us have got things that make us anxious. Anxiety is like one of the human experiences. No human being can't ex- doesn't experience any anxiety ever, unless you know, we've got a couple of case studies of people with serious like brain damage, like lesions in part of the brain that destroyed those part of the brains. And um, but for most people, anxiety is an experience that you would just have at some stage. Anyway, I, th- I think there's a reason why, like, we, you know, we do comfort eating because it puts you into that parasympathetic nervous system state. If I have like five chocolate hobnobs i'm going into rest and digest my body's going ah here's some sugar here's some fat oh here's some carbs now we can kind of turn into the into the big old uh, python digesting a goat right you can like lean back with your oh my gosh like even i i so in may i became vegetarian permanently I'd, I'd done like veganuary in in january and was surprised that i could kind of get through it did it again in may got to the end of it and was like you know what i don't think i'm gonna eat meat again i'm gonna 
avoid sort of dairy and eggs or at least like cut down on them to the extent that they're a treat rather than an everyday thing and and, and you know and um, immediately and predictably have become like a real judgy asshole, and that's something i've got to work on is going i can't believe all these people eating eating beef and steaks Ugh. look at those people eating pork and and chicken even though the soy is being sort of derived by from these areas of the amazon that are being burnt down not like what i haven't these have these people got no moral compass at all and it's like mate you've been vegetarian for like a few weeks come on come on <laughs> like at least this, this is this is you this is me like this it's like being the equivalent of like how expats can be really sort of like an exaggerated version of their national identity so whenever i've like met british expats like in somewhere like uh in somewhere like Switzerland and they've got <laughs> they've got like an oil painting of the Queen on their wall and like their biscuit tin is, is a red London bus and there's a Union Jack and you're like, oh, are you, are you having a bit of an identity crisis? Oh, this is what it's like to be part of a diaspora, right? You, you, you have this massive like uh, identity and cultural identity anxiety and you're like, look, look, I'm still, I'm still British. Look, I've got a picture of the Queen on the wall. British people don't have pictures of the Queen on the wall. Nobody does. That's that's mental. But it's it's you know, it, it, I think these you have the we have these reactions. We have these slightly exaggerated things. And so anyway, so I I've got this thing of what I was getting towards is like I I had this discovered this massive carbs binge of having chips and coconut rice a portion of big coat portion of coconut rice and just having this absolute carbs binge oh yeah and i have the chips in a white pitter from the takeaway and being like oh and eat all that and then just lie on my back like a python that swallowed a pregnant goat and just being like i'm gonna digest this but it's very calming actually it is you might feel like a slight self-loathing if you're a bit mean to yourself but eating a lot is really calming anyway so these are all the things that I've been experiencing and now I'm trying to fight it and I've been speaking to psychiatrists, I've been speaking to neuroscientists, I've been speaking to uh, social and clinical psychologists, I'm hopefully speaking to some geneticists, I've spoken to a cardiologist, I've been speaking to researchers from various fields, people doing different studies in anxiety, I'm hoping to, I've spoken to a sports scientist, I'm looking at speaking people who are, like have the background in nutrition uh, I've speaking to lots of different people. I've got some stuff lined up, you know, hoping to speak to a couple of people who are doing research into uh, psychedelic interventions for anxiety. So people who've been using like psilocybin and MDMA and uh, ketamine even and, and possibly uh, LSD as well uh, for these kind of like very intense interventions for anxiety and panic and all of these things that are... Um, I'm hoping to put be able to put together a program looking at like inflammation, all these things. At the moment, I don't have a great way of like communicating it. You know, I'm in that stage of. And if any of you ever tried writing nonfiction, or you know, you've written a PhD or something like that, you have the initial stage where you're interested enough in the subject to maybe have some knowledge of it already, and you kind of quietly think. I'm going to go in and I'm going to write about this thing. And uh, I, I'm, I'm actually probably not going to have to do that much research because I'm, you know, I'm a bit of an expert already. You know, a little bit of a, a bit of a dabble, a bit of a 
uh, amateur expert you know i like to you know I, I, i've stuck this is my first sad rodeo um i've i've dabbled in the world of mental health i've i've been a mental person before so i, I thought i imagined i knew most of it right i knew the parts of the brain that I've certainly talked about it confidently on the show as if I know what the fuck I'm talking about. So I imagine I was going to jump in, confirm a few things and then write this this book. So it turns out everything is much more uh, complicated than I realised. And I, I've often, you know, a lot more neuroscientists and psychiatrists and psychologists I've spoken to have used words like arsehole when ter- talking to, talking about another researcher in the field or that's bollocks uh than i expected to the extent that it sometimes felt a bit like i've wandered into a pub where there's a a bar fight going on and like somebody's just handed me a chair and said go and hit that person there's a lot of controversy there's a lot of people accusing other people of being shills or willing useful idiots or misrepresenting data or profiting or being assholes, basically and i was really surprised so then i had a, a, a month of like being like fuck this is way more complex there's no easy story i can pull out of this oh god i might not be able to write my book and now i'm starting to get enough information and i sat down with some very generous people i spoke to a really great guy actually i really recommend his youtube channel this guy um dr rohin francis who does a youtube travel channel called medlife crisis which has a really great mini series in it called if it ducks like a quack where he talks about some like health gurus and um tests their claims and he just talks about study design as well he's got a really great video on like different biases in research studies and how to pars studies when you read them and i went and met up with him in london and he really really like explained from the bottom up what peer review means all of these things anyway so now i'm starting to feel like i've got a little bit of a handle on it i'm very mindful that um if you think you're an expert on something you're likely to be to have certain unconscious biases so actually some of the stuff i've been most excited about i've made a point of going into it and being as skeptical as i can and asking researchers questions like uh what do you think the best evidence that you've encountered is that your model of how this works is wrong or um, if you were going to design a study to that you thought would be the strongest case for testing whether this is false like what how what would you what would you experiment on and i think that that elicits some really useful answers out of people and often i've been surprised and really pleasantly surprised how willing people are to um have their work interrogated like that uh don't you know don't take it as me being an arsehole about it or me trying to be a, a smart ass or, or or call them uh quacks like i'm just trying to understand it and um and now right, i've got to the exciting stage where I, now i'm starting to speak to experts and they'll talk about their field of study in the world of anxiety or panic and i'll go oh wow that um that reminds me of this study i read here or i was just speaking to such and such and they'll go really oh that's a very good point or can you email me that study actually that sounds like it'd be really useful for my next funding application or i've never heard of that before wow that's really interesting and i'm starting to kind of like because you have this broad cross-section of people starting to like connect people up with each other and um it's getting really exciting and of course i still you know very mindful that the brain is a complicated thing anyway this whole world of research and 
getting into anxiety has been why I've been really busy and it's been a struggle to find time to do this podcast in any way more than this kind of rambling thing. And I, I think, you know, to bring it back to, you know, what I've been talking about, about being kinder to yourself, I think it's really important that I thought I would record these episodes and keep them going like this because if something's worth doing, I think it's worth doing badly. I think it's worth doing a shit job of it. I think it's worth kind of like just rolling it over the line with the engine rattling, as um, Nick Harkaway put it in his uh, in my lovely interview with him. Nick Harkaway's just such a great guy. I'm very, very fond of him as, as an author and as a human being. I think I'm really glad the world has him in it. Um, but this idea that I think that kind of perfectionism will stop you doing anything and I would rather do a sort of slightly shoddy slapdash shit job of something and actually do it than and occasionally stumble across greatness than be one of those people where everything that I put out has to be this amazing version of what I do because I, I find that that this perfectionism is a kind of like uh, creative version of, of miserliness. It's like I'm not going to spend these things. I don't want to reveal myself to be less than perfect by putting out less than perfect material. No, I, 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 I think you will not get the training in you need if you do that. And it's far better to allow yourself to just be shit, write a bunch of stuff, go, hey, here's what I've done. You know, in the same way that my daughter does her lovely, she's, she's, we inherited off some friends who didn't need it anymore a big wooden easel with loads of paper and she's been painting uh, on it and having just and being absorbed she's just turned three and she's just having a lovely time I bought her a little black beret so she can she was painting and she turned to my wife and said uh, I'm pretending to be an artist and my wife saw her you know painting and doing all these lovely colors and said well Suki actually you know, you might not realise this, but actually, because you're painting, so you really are an artist. And Suki got very angry and said, no, I'm pretending to be an artist. <laughs> but that's fine as well. You know, this I, I think we're all pretending to be artists at some level. And he, he, uh, <laughs> he segued glibly. But I think there is some great wisdom in, in there that, like, it, it's, you know, m- my daughter will write, thank you cards to people or just cards to people that she likes just a lovely card and she'll just do some colors in it and fold it up and give it to them and it brings them such joy and as soon as you start adding perfectionism to these things you your contributions to the world your experiments your bravery will start falling away and i think it's really really important to be willing to do something just shit and you're that's how we create that's how we make stuff that's how we go look i don't i don't care too much anymore about what people think of me i and that is so freeing and that's the place where good stuff will come out of stuff that is the opposite of hackery because it will come from love and it might be that you don't care so you write just a gloriously plotty twisty bit of pulp with twists at the end of every chapter it might be you don't care about people what people think so you write a very unmarketable complicated half poetry half prose novella that you think there's no space for in the world but it's for you and it expresses something and you it just puts flavors on your brain and 
just sherbet behind your eyeballs and it makes you feel happy you know like you it's very difficult to do these things if you're constantly imagining what a chorus of statler and waldorf like critics are going to make of it it's very difficult if you imagine that the audience were already sitting there in their seats waiting to receive it it's kind of like you know like guy gunneratney talked about when he came on the show talking about writing the follow-up to his amazing debut novel in our mad and furious city which i just recommend it won a bunch of prizes after i had him on the show and uh well deserved but just saying he had to go away and kind of imagine saying to his audience look thank you for reading my novel and enjoying it i'm gonna go away now when i come back i'm gonna have written something completely different just be prepared you might not like it and I'm not asking you to. I'm not asking you to be loyal to me. I'm just like, I'm going to go and write it. And it's not for you. And I think that's a really good, healthy bit of distancing. Anyway, so the one, some of the things I've been doing are also I'm trying to make myself less anxious by applying a bunch of stuff that I've heard from these neuroscientists and psychiatrists and all these different disciplines, which means, you know, I've been reading a lot of research about inflammatory markers and how anxiety might be uh, an inflammatory condition you know a lot of this stuff is very speculative and the effect sizes are small and there's problems with uh, how replicable the studies are so i'm not i do not think i'm endorsing any of these uh, models as absolute but one of the things that can increase inflammation in the body is uh, excess weight so i've been trying to uh, lose a bit of weight while at the same time you know that segues with exercise been speaking to a sports scientist he gave me lots of great advice so i've been doing some exercise to increase testosterone and serotonin and endorphins in my body and help my body deal with stress again like the evidence actually for exercise being uh effective against severe anxiety is decidedly mixed i'd say that certainly the jury is um has not returned a unanimous verdict on what you would think would be an easy slam dunk doing more exercise makes you less anxious maybe it might do i'd say it's definitely not an open and shut case it's not and i was amazed by that i was like fuck how can i write this book if i don't even know whether jogging is good for stress we do in some studies have returned that view some haven't especially for severe anxiety but you know, as it was pointed out to me by this really amazing guy that I chatted to called Dave Thomas, who is just a real inspiration, actually. I really, really loved talking to him. I don't want to sound like a lovey, but this, uh, you know, who does, you know, helps train people at the gym and things like that. But, I, you know, he, as he pointed out, like, if exercise has no effect on anxiety... It has a bunch of ancillary, and actually some people would consider the the primary benefits um, that you'll get anyway. So the worst, it's like it's like that cartoon um, about climate climate change, where there's a group of scientists watching a presentation uh, where it's you know saying we you know we, we can like cut down on we can like regrow our forests and cut down on how much we consume and uh we can like look after the environment and get these new areas of natural beauty and reduce pollution and the person saying well climate change is a hoax and we're creating a paradise for nothing <laughs> yeah I, I i paraphrase but i i you know the idea is that like, if you do exercise and it has no effect on your anxiety there will be a bunch of other benefits so it would be great anyway so since doing that i've lost i've lost just over a stone in 
a few weeks and uh, I've been exercising a lot more, getting a lot more steps in, just doing a lot of stuff like that. I've also, whisper it, come off my medication after over two years of being on sertraline, this SSRI. Um, and I really didn't want to be writing a book about, oh, pharmaceutical medication's bad, it's big pharma, oh, just these like simplistic bollocks that I've seen. And I am heavily subtweeting a particular <laughs> a particular author here, but like this like lazy oversimplified view of medication that that gets pushed and very dangerous as well very dangerous to push simplified views out there just because it will sell you fucking books and I was like I'm not going to do that even though I think I could make a bunch of money by going to an extreme and quackery is a great way to get rich right and nuance is a great way to to get ignored but it's like have but Self-respect is a great way to continue living your life and I'm going to go with that, right? And I am being very catty and I apologise. You can think I'm a dick if you want to. But, um, you know, I'm slightly having to eat a certain amount of um, crow because I started to decide that maybe I should come off my meds. Like, they certainly weren't stopping me from having screaming panic attacks. So I was like, how much worse can this get? Now, SSRIs are supposed to trend off slowly, and content warning for like what comes from this point on, because obviously I'm talking about mental health. So if you if you are having a rough day today, maybe you can just um, pause this and have a listen later. But you, there's a thing I started to read about called SSRI discontinuation syndrome. They call it discontinuation syndrome. That is a bit of spin by uh, big drug companies like uh, Pfizer and things like that who don't want to call it what it is, which is a is with is drug withdrawal in the same way that if you came off like benzos or something, you would have a, a massive withdrawal because your body is built up, you know, a certain levels in your bloodstream and it takes, it's got a half-life where that starts tapering off and people have reported nausea, shakes, insomnia, um, things that they refer to as brain zaps that I suppose are a bit like the kind of hypnagogic jerk that you get when you're drifting off to sleep and then suddenly you go Zzz, and you wake up. People starting to get those in the day all the time after like coming off SSRIs um, and anxiety and feelings of low mood, which often makes people decide, oh, maybe my depression or anxiety are coming back. I'll go back on the drugs, right? And also... You know, these drugs, you know, the drug trials are often like 12 to 18 weeks, maybe even less than that, maybe like eight weeks before something gets approved um, for clinical use. Very short. And then someone like me has been on them for two years. Well, you shouldn't really be on it for six months, more than six months. And if you do, these withdrawal effects are going to get worse and the side effects get worse. Now, I didn't want to admit any of this because like a lot of campaigners have been saying this for a while and saying that it's underreported and saying that... Stuff about the negative effects is not shared. It's, it's kind of like is I well I, I suppose like the least uh, the the interpretation that's likely to get me into least legal trouble is to say that these things are not shared well enough by the drug companies that make manufacture them, the effects of withdrawal, and that they suppress. I suppose would be the more uh, 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 legally. Uh, dicey way of the the the, the the 
effects have been suppressed or certainly that they put a lot of money into pushing the benefits and not very much to put pushing the side effects and the withdrawal symptoms so the idea is you're supposed to go to your doctor and trend off slowly from these things I'd been feeling like pretty good because I've been doing a lot of exercise and losing some weight and I was starting to get to the stage where I've been speaking to loads of psychiatrists about different approaches to dealing with anxiety, some cutting edge treatment, you know, stuff using magnets in the brain, passing electricity through the brain. You may remember my episode with Adam Green talking about using transcranial direct current stimulation to increase creativity and isolate areas of the brain that might be implicated in the... um, in the grand uh, project of creative endeavor all these kind of things you know ultrasonic stimulation of the deep brain uh, all these different things and, and some like cognitive behavioral therapy approaches and some kind of like exposure therapy approaches and some very interesting methods of the experimental methods with dealing with anxiety and panic and retraining the brain so i started to feel like i was a bit of an expert and i had the measure of anxiety and panic and then i noticed when i looked at my pill spacer that i'd actually forgotten to take my medication the the day before and on that and on the day that i noticed and it was getting to bedtime and i was like well i'm nearly two days deep into into not having meds and i often found that like two days after forgetting a day uh, i would have like a big spike of anxiety i i imagined anyway i felt like i'd seen a correlation and so i was like well maybe if i'm this deep this deep into it and i'm actually nothing bad's happened yet what if i just go cold turkey and the third day came around and i was feeling pretty good and my wife actually said to me, she said, you've been like really easy to be around the last few days. It's really nice. And I was like, yeah, I feel, I feel good. I feel relaxed. Didn't tell her what I was doing. And then the next day, which was the day before my daughter's birthday, I was walking to do an interview with this, uh, this Buddhist teacher about the Buddhist uh, uh, sort of uh, model of fear and the Buddhist attitude towards fear and the Buddhist... Um, buddha's kind of like uh suggestions on how to deal with fear and i realized that my wife had taken the afternoon off work to help prepare some stuff for my daughter's birthday and i realized i'd accidentally taken the car keys with me and i felt this wave of self-hatred came over me and i noticed i felt quite suicidal (laughs) and i you know part of my brain was like conscious that this is an overreaction for accidentally taking a car key with you but i felt bereft that i'd made the mistake and by the day of my daughter's birthday she was turning three i imagine it's kind of like an emotional time for most parents but i felt a little bit like i'd unscrewed the nose cone of the shuttle as we were passing through the troposphere and just put my face there I felt a little bit like I'd tried to get off a train instead of waiting for it to slow down by simply stepping calmly off the side and trying to run to keep up with the moving ground. I felt a little bit 
like I'd unhinged the cockpit of my rig cage and pressed my beating heart against a mill wheel and just ground it every emotion felt ridiculously intense I was crying openly I was seeing my daughter this precious wonderful girl turn three and I was struck by how short life is and how we can't protect the people we love and how we're all going to die and how time moves so quickly and how I was surrounded by such wonderful people and how I couldn't and what if my daughter had a bad day on her birthday what if she was disappointed what if she had all these hopes of what it was going to be like and it wasn't that and how short the day was going to be and how now she'll never be three again she'll never be two again you know that that two-year-old that I've hung out with for a year this little bait my baby is no longer it's just gone you know she's contained somehow inside inside the three-year-old but she's <sighs> you know it's hard of course it's and especially maybe it's maybe women in this our society experiences as well but as a man it's um you realize how badly how badly swindled you be you've been by a world that doesn't let us cuddle each other and have emotions and cry that you will get teased and viciously mocked and called a wimp and sometimes beaten up openly <laughs> crying or showing support and i it's lovely to see children nowadays cuddling each other and looking after each other and I've been struck actually by how tender some boys I've seen of like five six seven eight have been with my daughter how inherently nurturing they are how how they take to this parental role looking after her when she was a bit younger you know leading her making space for her so she could go on the slides she didn't feel crowded making sure people weren't too noisy around her or you know scared her I've seen how tender sort of some young boys can be with babies and it's it makes me so delighted. Um but I was finding that I couldn't hold it together. And 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 also was feeling it's going to seem odd to be your daughter's birthday and you feel these sometimes these feelings of like suicide or self-harm where I just just the world was too much you know uh because i've been thinking up until this point well god coming off coming off ssri's cold turkey after a couple of years actually been a bit of a piece of piss and i'm glad i did it this way instead of tapering down i'm gonna have to put a note in the book saying don't do it this way just because i have it's gonna look really irresponsible especially because it's gone well for me and you know if the book comes out i'm gonna have to say don't do this because otherwise people are going to accuse me of suggesting something that's really dangerous but what i've got to be honest it's been really easy <laughs> guess what tim um, and it was fucking brutal i was so emotional but i also felt like i'd 
I felt there was a period of I was just grieving and emotions that had been locked up for years inside of me were pouring out. And once my daughter had gone to bed on the day of her birthday, I spoke to my wife and she was amazing and we hugged and I talked about my feelings and she talked about hers and we talked about some of the bereavements we've had over the past couple of years, some of which were quite sudden. But when you've got like a one-year-old child, when you've got a baby, you don't always feel like you've got time, especially with the amount of sleep that you're getting to really process these things. And we talked about some of our fears and behind all of and we cried and we held each other and behind all of that was such an incredible incredible wave of love and an incredible and I realized that like this was what I was feeling was not depression even though there were points where I felt like I wanted to self-harm just to control the emotions because what it, a lot of it was was just how precious the world is and how wonderful human beings and I, I know this is some hippie shit right and I've got some problems with the hippie movement in terms of anti-scientific approaches and uh, superstition and the rejection of all medicine you know don't I'm still angry with the with the uh, hippie I was talking to who was um, rubbing a crystal on their Labrador's tummy instead of taking the dog to the vets uh, to get to get it seen to because it was having stomach problems. I'm just like fucking take your dog. There's not big pharma does not is not trying to put like I mean they are trying to put microchips in pets sometimes, but that is for your benefit and for us. That's not that's not Big Brother, but like your dog is suffering. Stop stop rubbing fucking gemstones on the belly, but. This whole like love thing is, it is what's there, and underneath it all was this feeling of deep, 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 deep love. We are. But love, and you know, even our children, we we don't possess these things, do we? They're not possessable. We can feel love, but we can't. You can't stop the flow of time, and so that's what I've been going through. And I have to say, after that, the day after. My feelings were much more mellow and they've been settling down and settling down. And it's not that I want to forget that intense feeling, but it was like, actually, some of the things I've been talking about, I've been looking at, you know, in terms of like psychedelic retreat therapy, where people are going in and taking big ass doses of like magic mushrooms and then putting on eye eye masks and spending like eight hours tripping balls um not moving anywhere with the trip sitter right and with some kind of therapeutic intervention but it's very intense speaking to and i don't want to talk about this too much because I, I you know i want to put this in the book but speaking to someone who helps people get over their claustrophobia and this is not a new approach but some of the ways she's inflected it are certainly make it extreme but, but helping people recover from claustrophobia by locking them in in a cleaning cupboard possibly for eight hours you know to try and beat their phobia in one day extreme exposure therapy often while giving them some kind of like pharmaceutical intervention as well to affect how their brain works while they're doing it right like these are intense things well kind of coming off SSRIs in this stupidly quick way that I did I suppose the only thing and then timing it with my daughter's third birthday which is always going to be an emotional time anyway it has been a little bit like 
having to confront all the stuff at once. In a lot of the psychedelic therapy literature, they talk about if you encounter a door, go through it. And I feel like that's, I feel like I locked myself in a cleaning cupboard with my emotions. And one of the most scariest ones of all, which is love. Because if you love stuff, you know, I see all this stuff about, you know, in Buddhism, we talk about kind of like one of the defilements being craving and wanting to possess things. But how could you not feel greedy about this world? How could you not like see the leaves turning, oh, the, the tree outside a house, the leaves are turning red, this kind of like, um, this delirious sort of cherry sunburst red with yellow notes around the edge and it's incredible how could you not want to jealously keep all for yourself this beautiful three-year-old girl with amazing curly hair who's funny and exciting and occasionally punches me in the eyeball or headbutts me in my front teeth while she's wearing a helmet and also is hilariously funny and kind and generous and inventive. How could you not feel greedy of that and want to keep it for yourself forever? How could you not want to stop time, you know? And these are the things I've been going through and I've got a lot more to put into place as well. A lot more and it's only going to get more intense as I try to dig down into my anxiety and panic. These things that have you know, arrested part of my life that have stopped me from embracing life, that have kept me hiding. I'm looking for ways through it and it is emotional. My dear noble friend, I'm. it's hard. And it feels like the mo one of the most important things I've ever done. Uh, but that's my reason for sometimes not getting all the writing done I would have liked to. Um, that's one of my reasons why I've not been recording as many shows that's why my weekly writing uh, workout emails have been a bit patchy of late because I've just been busy working on myself. I'm off social media as well, which of course has meant that I've not really... Social media is like this safety behaviour for me that I go on whenever I'm, my feelings are overwhelming. So on that Friday when I was starting to feel just like the world was melting my face off with emotion with the heat of it with the intensity of it i would have normally have gone on started scrolling through facebook started scrolling through twitter i mean i spent sometimes like six hours a day on social media i think probably at least uh or on twitter or instagram and it was making me miserable and i've read lots of studies about the effects of social media on anxiety and mental health and well-being i did think having read one meta-analysis that looked at 23 different studies that it was a pretty much open and shut case that higher internet use correlates with lower well-being over time right I, I think now actually as with everything i'm looking at it's more complicated than that and often as people get more anxious they engage in more compulsive problematic internet use which can then cause more anxiety or depression it could be a vicious spiral but using the internet a lot I, there's also some studies that suggest it doesn't inherently make you more likely to score highly on various questionnaires to do with anxiety scales so don't feel like i'm saying i'm not saying it's scientifically proven i have in the past but i think i was in i was premature 
now I've got a slightly more nuanced understanding to say that it definitely is. But certainly my coming off it, at least until the new year, has been a revelation. And I feel more engaged with the world but then you have to come and meet your feelings because there's a reason you were fucking running away wasn't there it's the same as like stopping drinking when i stopped drinking in 2012 stop drinking alcohol you go oh this is gonna i'm gonna feel better well you probably will ultimately but there's a fucking really good reason you were you were drinking there is a really <laughs> happy people don't do that right there's a reason that you are hitting the bottle there's a reason why you're on social media all the fucking time there's a reason why you're avoiding your writing oh i'm gonna feel i'm now i get i've given myself this week's you know i spoke to this buddhist guy actually he talked about going on ret- retreat right going on and meditating for hours and hours a day and I think like a lot of people, including myself, imagine those things to be like spa weekends, right? Where you'd go and you just relax and oh, all the aches and pains flow away. Well, actually, he said like retreats are often terrifying. You often have locked yourself in a service elevator with your worst fears, with your, you know, he said he got into Buddhism because he had this kind of like fear of death. And Buddhism then, the you know, the Buddha then says, yeah, you know what? Much of what we imagine uh, to be possessable, to be graspable, um, in fact, all of that isn't. We are all going to die. The people that you love are going to die. Your achievements won't last. Even this world itself is impermanent. Well, that's quite a lot. I was going, I thought I was coming to religion for some consolations. You know, when we look at you know the 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 original kind of like english conceptions of christianity and stuff even when you kind of move from uh this kind of like catholic conception of prayer having some kind of mechanical instrumental almost magical efficacy right that you can you can uh you know say a prayer or you can like have a holy relic or splash something with holy water and it will increase uh god's effect on that thing that you can directly that that prayer if not having a mechanical uh one for one efficacy at least has like some kind of petitionary power where you can turn god's roving sauron like eyeball to where you are by praying and god may sort of bless you or uh, allow his grace to touch that part of the world but even when we get to these sort of slightly uh, more laissez-faire uh, Purit- Puritan conceptions, these Protestant conceptions of uh, God's influence on the world, there's still the kind of hand of providence kind of moving things, even if a lot of this has been planned in advance. You've got this idea that, one, if we're pious, we're going to go to heaven and have eternal life. But two, that any sort of bad thing that happens to you is happening for a reason maybe it's to punish you but there's there's a reason and there's a purpose and ultimately you know you will all be reunited in heaven in paradise and, and you know you might argue that buddhism has a similar thing with the kind of like concept of karma that there is some kind of like karmic law that is meaning that things are happening for a reason but it's certainly more it's certainly you know buddhism for what it's worth so it seems to often be saying yeah, 
yeah, we're going to we're going to die. Actually, like a lot of what you're doing is distracting yourself from the fact that these three key things, sickness, old age and death, they're coming for you and you can't escape them. And. And a lot of the stuff we do, I think. Is to distract ourselves from those things to give us some temporary relief. And you do get some to. Oh, oh, I'm sitting down and watching the TV now. Oh, ah. It's like you you just have it. And that's a wicked feedback loop in your brain of rewarding you from turning your attention away from some of the realities of life. But what I suspect is that past those things is a great deal of love and preciousness and something akin to a, a qualified form of freedom for human beings. This has got very philosophical, and I think this is what happens when you come off your psychiatric medication very quickly and very hard. But also it does make life a bit easier, you know, in terms of... I don't mind talking about this stuff because... I don't mind talking about my mental health. I'm not too worried about it because, you know, like I say, life is short. And when you've got that in mind you is kind of freeing you don't you're not so worried about what people think and that's a very happy place and i feel very fulfilled with love for people at the moment which i know look i realize if you listen to these episodes of this show in order i it, i do appear to be making the classic slide into like cult leader leader slash guru right I go from, I'm like making the transition to lifestyle guru and then I'm going to make another transition into cult leader and then we will all horribly die together in some in some kind of standoff with authorities. But until then, you know, I'm probably at a sweet spot now where um it just feels nice. Uh, in terms of how you apply this to your writing, like I don't think every episode of this has to always come back to writing except that your fear of like what if this is shit what if no one likes it to kind of like uh take those like revelations of the buddha and apply them to writing i'd say if you look about at how many books that were written a hundred years ago that are still being read now the answer is very 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 few certainly not in any great numbers if you look i'll tell you what if you want something that's going to like really put a lot of our writing worries into perspective look at the like best-selling novels in britain from like 1900 to 1950 look at the number one best-selling novel each year and give yourself a word as original for every number one bestseller that you've heard of that you recognize the title i suspect you may by the end have uh, as many as one word as original in your mouth because uh, you just like what the fuck is this what books are these <laughs> like unless you are like a you know something of a scholar of popular fiction you know you may, uh, m- maybe you'll recognize like a book like what is it trilby like maybe there'll be one or two that you'll n- know a bit and maybe if you look down the list of each year, you'll find one. But actually, most of them you have never heard of. And those are the best-selling books 
right? Those were being read by so many people. Have you heard of them? No, you fucking haven't. You, they've they've burned away like so much morning fog. Does that mean there were shit books? No, actually. Like I really, if you've got like a Kindle or a um, Kobo or any kind of like e-reader, I really recommend going on to like Project Gutenberg or going online and getting. You can get them for free now. They're out of print. Now they're out of copyright. Um, some great twenties and thirties pulp. Some great like bestsellers, and some of them are incredibly fun. You know, some of them are also got very problematic content in places. Not always. Uh, so it's, I'm not vouching for all of them, but there's some great, there's some fantastic kind of lost classics out there. What I'm saying is, if you're hoping that your writing's going to make you immortal or you're going to be sort of remembered for all time, most books, even the fantastic ones, are forgotten within a hundred years. Are just disappeared let alone you know like even in their time there are and, and like i hear stuff like this and i go well okay yeah yeah you're right and then privately i'm thinking but not with me i'm gonna maybe i'm gonna write this book that's gonna be like handed down by generation to generation as a favorite book even if you do that you know it will be reinterpreted by people you know even if you wrote the equivalent of like lord of the rings right it's gonna be appropriated by different people it's going to be made into a film that's going to take change bits tweak bits make bits that aren't yours anything that does well is so explodes like buckshot out into the public cultural consciousness that it's no longer yours anyway that it's gone through so many mutations that it is something else it's a wave traveling outwards and evolving and growing all the time right the same way with just like having children, this idea that you're passing something on, they will defy you and become beautifully, wonderfully their own people and have some values that are different to yours. If you've done a good job, right, they're not going to just be clones of you. They're going to feel differently. And so the person that you are has been gloriously mistranslated. But... I think it's almost impossible to write a book that doesn't have some impact on the person who's writing it and that doesn't have some impact on everyone who reads it, you know? I I, th- I feel like these books, they ripple out in ways that we barely understand. And we have too much of an emphasis of whose name is on the cover. And we... You know, like, and even even someone like, I mean, like J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter gets brought up a lot, but it's definitely true. And I don't think anyone would deny this. And I, I, I don't think she would d- deny this herself, that that book uh, stands on the shoulders of multiple different books. Right. So much has influenced that book. And it, it's, it's so many tropes that it just uh, appropriates and plays off and, and uses, uh, you know, the romance of the quadrangle and all of these different genres that you know i don't think harry potter could exist without mildred hubble i really 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 doubt that um so many different things have fed into that and especially you know th white's uh arthurian quartet i don't think it could exist without would would exist without that i do recommend those books actually i think they're fantastic if a bit sad and upsetting so what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that your influence on stuff, not that T.H. White's Once and Future King 
didn't have an impact in its time and wasn't a huge book in itself. I'm not saying that is like so so well done THY actually your book did wasn't this sleepy failure that it's it, it, it it's always done well and it's still in print and still read by people um my my, my point is that behind this realization that the um, immortality you're seeking through writing the approval the sitting on stage answering questions at a lit- literature festival which to me often feels quite grueling uh although I'd always imagined being able to do it and, and then I go on stage and I'm just anxious and I feel like I'm failing people and or I feel really irritated I have to sit on a panel oh, oh I'd love to be invited onto a panel I'd love to go to a con and be invited on a panel I think and then I'm on a panel I fucking hate it I'm such a selfish git right I, I feel so angry with the I'm so honestly I'm just being honest about my feelings that come up other panelists say stuff that I vehemently disagree with and then it comes around to me and I have to go I just have to say I don't think that's true and so I'm so irritated I, I'm just like I just want to sort of grab the mic go right everyone else get off stage and I will have an hour and a half of talking to this audience. I'll take some questions at the end, but I want to talk to this audience directly because other people are wrong. Now, of course, intellectually and emotionally, it's sort of I, I know that's silly. And actually, when I'm quiet, I often learn a huge amount from other people. It's why I love doing interviews on this show, because I just I'm encouraged to shut up a bit. I learn so much and it's a nice I like holding open a space where I can hear views that aren't necessarily mine and often you know people are saying stuff that is roughly concordant with what I believe already but it's just so nice to shut up and hear people and that's why I do it because I learn stuff and because I want you to hear other people's viewpoints because I imagine I can be like reasonably convincing when i talk about these things especially i talk you know i've I've got a certain amount of rhetorical authority i've written a few books i kind of open myself up make myself a bit vulnerable which you know probably makes you trust me a little bit more and so then you know i could cause some huge damage by just making assertions especially when an authority figure you know like me and i'm not saying i'm your authority figure in the world at large but to people who listen to this show if i give you an injunction don't do this which i've done a lot they, you know, they call that a nocebo, right? An authority figure gives you an injunction and actually it sort of, it ends up becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, if I've made a mistake there, if I've said don't do this kind of writing, don't finish a sentence with a preposition or whatever sort of nonsense thing I've told you this week, you know, I know from the emails I've received that's, lo- that's locked people up. They've become sort of creative, creatively egg-bound. I don't want to do that. I want to be very careful. And so having other people, having other voices. And, oh, God, I just love the excuse to talk to other writers because they're all just such amazing people and I want them to be my mates. But we have these kind of conversations and you get to hear other points of view and you go, well, actually, maybe, you know, maybe Tim isn't the only... uh, uh, isn't the only uh, ship in this port that I can hop aboard and there are other destinations and there are other models. And I think that's really really useful you know when we had nick shuckler on the show went on the episode where we i was talking to him about his own writing and you know his sort of central writing tip or piece of writing advice was like look there's a lot of people telling you a lot of things out there and if something works for you then it's right for you like that is that's the final test of any piece of writing advice i don't want to say things to people and you think that's the one way i've got to do it there are lots of ways to do these things I guess what I was doing, getting at with the whole sort of 
Buddhist and death thing. It's just like most of our writing is going to be ephemeral in the same way. And I'm, you know, I'm maybe I'm a bit more used to this because I did stand up, I did performance poetry, and you're doing things that exist in the moment, exist for that one audience. You know, I I always feel like the like the key to like the my touchstone for live for a live performance or a live piece of art working for it being good is the feeling that what i am seeing here will never happen again it's that precisely that ephemerality that makes it feel so connected there's a wonderful bit that um the uh comedian and uh and pianist sammy jays an australian comedian did in his show at edinburgh where he'd be like chatting and playing he's a very very funny guy he'd be playing the piano and chatting to the audience and he'd be sort of saying uh you know what you've got to remember is that actually this group of people in this room we are never all going to be together again we this are we us now together this is never going to happen again uh, i mean we could agree in sort of five or ten years to all meet up again you know we could say we're all going to meet up and recreate this but someone will be sick someone won't make it someone won't bother and uh, it it, we wouldn't be able to recreate it and and then at some point you know in the future so someone one of us is going to get sick and, and and die and slowly one by one everyone in this room including me uh, is going to die until eventually there'll just be one person left and that person will have won That's good, isn't it? That's good. I I didn't do it justice, but I love that. I love that. And I, 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 you know, you may think that I'm losing my mind, but I do think life and these moments are terribly precious. And whether you write or not, probably in the long run, doesn't matter or certainly matters less than you take these opportunities to love, to message people friends you haven't seen in a while and say hey how are you doing i've been doing that a load uh, that you write to people that you phone your gran that you haven't spoken to or your mum if you get on with your parents or someone in your life who you know fulfills that role they miss you give them a ring and say you love them or just have a chat it doesn't have to be intense you don't have to say i've been thinking about death you can just meet up with someone you haven't seen in a while i think living well and loving those people is more important than us writing a best-selling novel however in a kind of tricky kind of like chinese finger trap pretzely way if you can let go of that need to for your writing to do well or for your next sentence even to be as good as your favorite book if you can understand there are more we've got more important things to think about you increase the chance of the next thing you write actually being pretty good and you open up that possibility so my final prescription for you today is just to and if you haven't i hope you feel if you're able to write in longhand i I think it's a real tonic unless you've got some physical uh, reason that makes it hard in which case it would be uh don't force yourself into doing it um although you know you could try you know, I'd say like audio voice dictation, dictation technology has got better and it would be interesting to use that 
to try that with writing fiction a little bit it certainly would be freeing i think it would certainly open up a different style to you and you've got a built-in excuse if it doesn't come out how you'd like it to but you know get yourself your writing notepad and if you haven't got one treat yourself to one it can be really scrappy and crappy it can be super great i tend to go somewhere down the middle something that's kind of like hard back but cheap from like somewhere like wh smith and then i stick some colorful stickers on it i've often gone for powerpuff girls i love the powerpuff girls but you know personalize it and then just do these little 10 minute you can do a 10 minute free write you can do some list exercises i'm going to continue putting up new exercises on my mailing list uh you know you can just write about something write about makeup you know you could even spend 10 minutes making up some writing exercises for yourself you know write a recipe for something that doesn't exist for a magical potion write a set of instructions on how to find something that's been buried by someone write something about how you feel maybe maybe write a letter from the perspective of character in the book you're working on if you've got stuck maybe write a letter from them to you maybe if you're stuck somewhere in your one of your stories or a novel maybe pick one of the characters write in their voice you could write to them first and then get them to write and write to them about a plot problem say what do you think should happen next and get them to write back to you is it silly yeah of course it is that's what the wellspring of all creativity is silliness because what we perceive as silly is really something that doesn't follow the rules and what doesn't follow the rules is creativity originality anything where you start breaking the rules is where magic happens where you start going this is wrong this is silly this isn't very grown up that's where amazing things start to happen you could do all any of those things also like if you were working on something i don't know if you've got like a folder of old things stories that you abandoned ideas notes maybe in the next 24 hours find that little folder of ideas notes stories half finished things read through one of them read through a few of them you may find the beginnings or ends of something that you had forgotten about that you look back and go actually this section here is pretty fucking shit hot um just let's dip back into these the are writing with a kind of lightness with a tenderness with a feeling of what kind of wonderful and magical and temporary place the world is and we understand that what we're doing is ridiculous really it's <laughs> you know the more that we try to take it seriously the more we look like my daughter yesterday on her bike pretending to be a an aeroplane pilot and she would i've never seen her do this before but she would start she like held a little kind of walkie talkie up to her mouth and then put on a really deep serious voice and would go okay everybody into the plane please we're about to leave make sure you've got your seatbelts on and did a very stern voice and then and then we're doing the other and then would go and i'd never seen her do it before and she took the role really seriously i think it's hilarious and i think sometimes when we talk about you know the art of writing and why write why breathe and the vitalness of the creative spark um sometimes i feel we are a little bit like a toddler on a balanced bike pretending to be an airplane captain because it's ridiculous what we do 
um, but it's also kind of beautiful and magical. And the fact that it should exist at all makes me delighted. If you've enjoyed today's episode and you would like something else that delights you, I just really recommend, and I say this from the bottom of my heart, folks, that you pick up um, one or both of my novels, um, The Honours and The Ice House. They're both about a character called Delphine. And the first one is in 1935 and is a kind of like a yarn, an adventure yarn about a country house and a mystery and locked doors and secret passages and tunnels and shotguns and a sprawling country estate. And the second one's set in 2008 and it's about that girl when she's grown up and is an old lady and, the, and some unfinished business. And how she thinks she's retired and then she's pulled back in for one last job. They've been very well reviewed. They look gorgeous. And actually, if you go on to somewhere, I don't you know, necessarily recommend you buy them from Amazon. I think I've got still got some issues with Amazon's ethics and I hope you do too. But you, can, you can certainly go on there to have a look. Um, I don't, you know, buy where you want to buy from. But um, ideally, you know, from your local brick, bricks and mortar bookshop or from somewhere like Wordery I recommend they're not owned by Amazon and they're a great often cheaper uh, book buying service but um, in February in the UK at least although I think in America as well it's coming out next year um, the paperback the small paperback editions of the Honours and the Ice House are coming out they look sexy the new Honours edition is a glorious royal purple and the um, ice house is a kind of uh, um, icy, rimy, uh, blue-white. And they just, they will make your shelves look like the, uh, like the uh, very, uh, like the, uh, like I imagine the shelves of the uh, sadly lost Library of Alexandria would have looked. You know, if you want to recreate the feeling of what that place was like before a fire destroyed it and its ancient wonders forever, then buy my books. You can go online, you can pre-order now, or you, or if you can't wait, you can get either of them in ebook or the lovely um, hardback of the Ice House. Please, 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 if you enjoy the show, support me, buy my books, and get in touch with me and let me know what you think of them. I'm not on social media at the moment, but you can still get in touch with me via my website, timclairepoet.co.uk. Um, just click on the contact me uh, button. I'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode because I realise it's super long and it went everywhere. Um, if you're reading my books, I'd love to hear how you're getting on. You can also send me the first page of your novel, novella, or a short story that you've polished to within an inch of its life, and I would be happy to uh, analyse it and break it down and give you some suggestions on how you can make it suck less on a, a future episode. And if you'd just like to let me know how you're getting on with your writing, I'd love to hear from you too. I absolutely adore getting emails from people. It makes my day. And I get a lot of them now, and um, the appeal has not worn off at all it's something that is infinitely enjoyable to me so um yeah go on my website tinklabpoet.co.uk and click the contact me button and finally if you enjoy the show and you want to just drop me some spondles directly to let me keep help me keep the lights on to help me cover the hosting costs for my website and for my soundcloud account then you can go to my coffee page that's ko-fi.com forward slash tim claire drop me a few beans direct thank you to everyone who continues to do that week on week out it's just lovely don't have any sponsors on the show uh 
we've had one episode that was sponsored if people decide to sponsor it in the future i'm very happy to do that but in the meantime it's completely independent i get to say what i like and that is because of your generous support either donating through the ko-fi or um through my buying my books just thank you so much i really appreciate it um, and there's links to all of those things in the show notes of today's show i'm going to finish now thank you dear dear friend for indulging me on this it's been quite a journey hasn't it today's episode thank you very much i'm feeling super happy i've loved speaking to you i hope you have a delicious and wonderful writing week <laughs>